Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Talk Nerdy to Me Radio. It is April 11th, 2020. This is the second episode of our new segment, The Nerdy Deep Dive. I am your host, Megan. And today we are going to be talking about documentary film. And basically, we're going to be focusing on the transition of it and evolution of it now that new mediums are presenting documentaries um, to the public. And so the person who I'm about to bring on, um, this was her idea, um, so she'll explain more about it as we talk about various things throughout the hour, Um, and that is my good friend, who you guys have listened to on many music and movie Mondays, um, Gabby. So welcome to the show, Gabby. What's up? Yo. All right. So this was your idea. I said, I want to do a nerdy deep dive with you. And you're like, what the hell does that mean? Um, And then the awkward conversation (laughs) happened, and I explained myself. Um, And then you came up with this idea. Now, I don't want to give away too much because we're going to be breaking it up. We're going to be looking at um, four documentaries um, in particular. Actually, I think five documentaries um, in particular. But what is it? Why did you come up with this idea to talk about? What was kind of like the spark? to get you well, to think this was something that would be discussed. I, I spend quite a bit of time watching movies, and I'm a particular fan of documentary. And I started noticing a trend. I started noticing that, well, maybe I'm watching a lot of documentaries myself, but then I started noticing, wow, there's a lot of content on Netflix in particular. And so I was wondering if it maybe was just my algorithm. But then I started <laughs> thinking, well, no. I mean, even, even if it is my algorithm and it's being presented to me, and uh, I'm being encouraged to watch it, it's still, the content's still there. So I mm-hmm. took a deep dive, no pun intended, into this realm of Netflix documentaries. When I came up gasping for air, I was a little, I was a little taken aback by the increase of volume of the content, but also really the quality. If I want to go and watch a documentary now, I'm wondering if it's on Netflix, which I think is a weird shift in how... <laughs> production houses, you know, uh, look at um, producing uh, quality content for documentaries. And even, like, this idea that you would go to, like, a little art house kind of film theater where you might go and see this really neat documentary that nobody's heard of. I don't – people aren't doing that, I don't think. I think people mm-hmm. of all ages are going to Netflix now. And I'm wondering what that means for the content that's presented on Netflix. No, and it's definitely true. I was, I was looking at what, like, you know, BuzzFeed's – What's coming new to Netflix? The majority mm-hmm. of the things that are coming to Netflix over the next couple of months are the Netflix documentaries. It seems to be yeah. in demand, and a few of the ones that we're going to be talking about has been mentioned on social media in large amounts. 
in fact, people won't stop talking about it. Um, <laughs> some of the ones that we're going to be talking about is pandemic, which is very mm-hmm. apt <laughs> for what's going yep. on right now. Um, making a murder, which is something that really blew up and everyone watched it and everyone talked about. Uh, World War II in color, the pharmacist, the toys that made us. Um, and then, of course, the big one that everyone's obsessed with right now is the Tiger oh God. King. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. It definitely feels like it's not specific people who are excited about demar- uh, about documentaries. It seems to be all people. Because before, it was like the history teachers, like us, mm-hmm. or it mm-hmm. was people who really were into documentary, documentary film um, or they majored in film, it seemed to be more specific people who kind of lived in that niche that documentaries tend to go for, kind of like academic writing in general. Not everyone right. reads American Political Science Association, but political scientists do. But now it seems like with Netflix documentaries, it seems like everyone, not just the people who have always, always enjoyed documentary film, um, is watching it. So I think what we can do is that's interesting. Yeah, it's because I was thinking about, you know, kind of where documentaries started from. And it actually is from a social scientist point of view. You know, you would go in a hundred years ago, you'd go record somebody uh, or a group of people. um, And it'd be kind of anthropological, a documentation Mm -hmm. of what's going on. But now it's really shifted. And I think that mainstream TV has a lot to do with it. Um, But, Netflix kind of has its own thing going on for what draws people in. And I think Tiger King has really kind of, I think we'll get to that, but I think Tiger King is kind of like the abomination of what's gone wrong perhaps with an Netflix documentary. Has so. it gone too far? Um, yeah. But yeah, so, so <laughs> we'll, we'll start talking about more specific stories and we will talk about Tiger King towards the end a little bit anyway. Um, not that I've seen it, but I've heard a lot of things about it. You saw one episode, mm-hmm. I believe. So we'll talk about yeah, that later. full disclosure. That's all that they got out uh, of me. <laughs> so the first one I want to talk about is Pandemic. Oh, yeah. Um, now, I have to say, I watched this right when Shelter in Place started in California. So it was not necessarily the greatest timing, <laughs> um, <laughs> psychologically for me. However... I was incredibly impressed with it. I felt like it really covered a lot of ground. I felt like there was a lot of perspectives that were brought to the table, and it definitely scared me and also made me realize, man, this was coming. Like, there's there's lots of people who were not surprised by the fact that we are, are dealing with this, but I think the majority of the public were surprised that we're dealing with this. But it seems like a lot of the experts were like, yeah, of course this was going to happen at some point. Um, so I guess my first question is just overall, what did you think about pandemic? Well, I I watched it a little bit before the um, it was now COVID-19 has been called a pandemic. I watched it a little bit before then. Like basically I think it popped up with my algorithm and I was like, oh, that looks really interesting. So I watched it right away. And what I found really compelling about it is that it did, it did take all these different stories and these different individuals and it weaved it together to where you saw like the different aspects and the overlapping of all these different real people who are out there concerned about the pandemics that could possibly happen. And then what they're trying to do individually to make sure that we don't basically find ourselves in the situation we're in right now. So 
um, they, I believe that they were trying to actually was very curious to see who from this um, documentary ended up um, like on different programs, on different news, 24-hour news, and several of them have. Um, so I think what's really interesting about it is that it, the foresight that they had might have seemed new to us, to you and I, but mm-hmm. it's not anything new to anybody in the scientific community. We're now seeing footage of previous presidents concerned about a pandemic happening and enacting certain uh, tasks or things or uh, having conversations with people to ensure that there's uh, preparation for it. So it, it just happened to be coming out at the time where we're actually living it in real time. So you, I told you to watch it. And then I started going and watching it again myself to try and actually find like some kind of, I don't know, like some kind of explanation I was seeking like, answers by watching Pandemic again. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, also, they, they also brought in the other side of it, which is like the anti-vaxxer movement. Um, mm-hmm. actually gave, they, they gave voice. Obviously, they had – it was a landslide against them, but they did give mm-hmm. a platform for anti-vaxxers to also uh, bring into it. Now, I'm curious – because you have a film background and you watch more documentaries than I think anyone I know. Um, do you feel like Pandemic felt like like a traditional documentary, or do you feel like in some that it was set up or made differently that could make it more appealing to other people besides scientists or people who are just super interested in the documentary, like? what do you think there might have been a change with it? Or did you feel like it was a pretty traditional documentary or what people would. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's like in in the modern sense, it's a pretty traditional documentary. It's uh, following people around. Uh, It's, it's got some talking heads. It's showing the personal toll, the personal aspect. It's bringing in the humanity of the stories of these individuals. Um, there doesn't seem to be any kind of recreation from what I can recall. There doesn't seem to be any kind of recreation. So you'll see that in things like the other things we're going to talk about, like the pharmacist and, and the other ones uh, where they try to recreate different scenes of crimes. Um, this seemed to be basically a, a version of Veritas, which means truth. So they're following people around, um, mm-hmm. filming them in action and letting the story unfold in front of them. Um, I, I, I mean, I wonder, like, I, I think that the success of this was just in presenting the information with a little bit of bias towards or against, maybe I should say, against the anti-vaxxers, against um, people who don't believe in science, because it was very science-based. But, I mean, it also has these aspects that bring the viewer in very quickly. So the very first scene of the first episode is showing the mass grave and connecting it to the 1918 pandemic and bringing it uh, home to U.S. soil. You know, sometimes when we think of mm-hmm. pandemics, we think of things from a long time ago and far away, like the, the Black Death. But actually, you know, as we all know now, we had a pandemic not too long ago. And this idea that a flu could happen um, possibly because of a transfer between animals to humans uh, anytime. Mm-hmm. You know, in January, it might have seemed more far-fetched than in April, right? But we're experiencing it now. So in terms of connecting it to other documentaries, yeah, it, it follows this, the same kind of pattern. It's well-made. It's highly produced. It, it doesn't have this aspect. Like, it, it doesn't look as if 
um, somebody um, like you or I are making it. It's definitely from a production house. Uh, they've researched it. They've got a basic story that they want to tell, and they find the individuals they want to uh, tell the story, and they go for it. I agree. I think as I was watching it, um, it definitely did feel more like the the types of documentaries that I've watched before Netflix, which is it definitely has a, a a story it's trying to tell, and it's weaving multiple narratives and multiple sides as they're weaving that one story to be told. Um, but I definitely felt like it was it was very fast moving, which I think is mm-hmm. a theme that I'm seeing in all of the documentaries in Netflix, meaning they didn't stay in one place for too long. It was like here and then here. And it all made sense and it was cohesive. Um, sometimes with the older, like Ken Barnes and like the older ones, they get really bogged down in the details of like one particular aspect that if you are a nerd, you're like, oh my God, this is fascinating. Talk to me more. But if you are not mm-hmm. that crazy history nerd, you might be like, well, this is boring. Come on. Like, let's, you know. Yeah. And, so it definitely. And pandemic could have been. Yeah, pandemic could have been on PBS, and Ken Burns does the same thing, right? Ken Burns will take like five different stories from whichever war he's covering, or from whichever mm-hmm. episode of maybe American history. He'll take five different perspectives and then show how these five different people somehow had to deal with this universal issue, whether it be civil war or uh, the World War II, Vietnam, whatever it might be. They take all. He yeah. takes these five different people and brings them together with these circumstances. It kind of felt like that with this as well, but it felt it felt a little bit. It, to use, you know, some of the language you're using, it felt snappier. It moved quicker. Yeah. You know, it, it was, and that's the thing that's about Netflix is that it, I was looking at the list that I gave you. These are docu-series. So they're documentaries they in a television format. So it's meant to encourage you to click next episode. It's meant to encourage you true. to keep going, keep going. And and that's why the show was postponed so many times is because I kept thinking that there were one-offs and then I kept discovering that they weren't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I was like, oh man, I don't have enough time to watch all this. But it definitely <laughs> breaking it down that way and the binge worthiness of things definitely I think adds to it. Now the mm-hmm. next one that we're going to talk about is the one that is became a phenomenon like there was yeah. like I, I didn't watch it for so long because so many people were talking so much about it um and i don't usually let that deter me but for some reason i'm like man like people are so on crack over this um i don't know <laughs> maybe i'll put a pause before i watch it but this one was a bit different than pandemic i feel like it, it the way it was shot and the things that they were doing was a bit different than the traditional documentary sense it definitely drew you in I was definitely hooked I watched it faster than I usually do with those sorts of things um Uh so what about this one what about making a murderer when it comes to maybe the differences that you're seeing or maybe Netflix finding its groove um what were your observations um well making a murderer uh, is definitely more sensational. The first season, I think, was better than the second one. I'll explain in a moment why. We'll get to that. But it, it's, it's kind of vain in documentary. I mean, if you, I'm a big fan. Of one of the, the reason why I'm into documentary in a big part 
is because I feel that sometimes it, that it can, it has the opportunity to truly change real life. So if you look at the thin blue line, what happened with that documentary, it was able to demonstrate that an individual was put into prison based off of faulty evidence, based off of, um, and, and that this person is, is innocent of the crime. Well, that's making a murder in first season, is that this person is demonstrated to have been accused of a crime because of, uh, I guess, like what small town politics or small town beef and got thrown into jail, served time, and then was proven to have not committed that crime. Then to ruin it for everybody, spoilers, uh, he gets accused of another crime. <laughs> and so what, what the docu- and sometimes with documentaries, and documentarians will talk about this, happen to be there at the right time. So they find an interesting subject, they, want, they go and they start to investigate, and then something happens around them. So this is now maybe you're starting to think maybe this connects a little bit to Tiger King, and it does, so we'll circle back around. But what happens in Making Murder is that presumably – the filmmakers like, oh, I want to investigate this really interesting story about this guy that got accused of this crime and then uh, gets released off of uh, uh, DNA evidence, new DNA evidence. And then this just a swarm of new stuff starts to happen to them, and you just keep the cameras rolling. It's compelling. And, and it, because it's a docuseries, you just keep going with it. You just keep clicking to that next episode. Mm-hmm. And what starts to happen is you're so curious if this person is going to go to jail again after they basically just got out of jail for something they did not do. And you, and that part, I think most people watching, even the skeptics would probably believe, yeah, uh, this person did not uh, commit that original crime. I think it was the eighties, right? Back in the eighties or ninety. or it the was 90s. in the eighties. Yeah. And, yeah. And so, Oh, they definitely didn't do that one. That's been proven. Right. But now this new mm-hmm. one, then you're like going, Oh my God, I don't know. And then it start, there's a moment I remember watching it going, oh, my God, did I fall for it? Did he actually maybe commit, even with that new DNA evidence that vindicated him, did he maybe commit the original crime? And then I was like, oh, my God, it's in my head. And I was like, this is, this is, this is cool. Like, I did it. Like, it just totally messed with my mind. I'm going to keep watching. Yeah. Then season two comes around, and they introduce some new individuals. And, and the, I forget her name, but the famous lawyer that picks up his case, um, she's kind of more of a character, but she presents herself also too to people as a character. She's got an image that she portrays. Once yeah, you get to season two, the, it starts to shift where it becomes more sensationalized. You're, you're thinking, oh my God, why is there even, think about it, why is there a season two to making a murderer? Like, are they going to make pandemic season two, the aftermath? Like, think about it. Like, there should not be season twos. <laughs> Netflix execs are on this now, though. They are uh, on this now, and if it happens, you need to ask for royalty. I'm I'm okay with it because we're living in the pandemic, so that makes sense. That one I'm I would be okay with, but there's something concerning about when we really step back and think about why would we want to create another season of a documentary? Why would we yeah. then if it starts to become reality TV ish? And I sense that shift in season two for Making a Murderer, and that's where I started to doubt what was actually going on. I started to investigate a little bit more, try to find things that were uh, like deleted scenes or things that were unclear. Mm-hmm. I rewatched season two to try to find out how I was being manipulated as a viewer to come to a certain conclusion. First season didn't feel like that. Second season, I definitely felt the manipulation. I agree with you a hundred percent. And in fact, and before the show, I, I was talking about like this idea of right and wrong and 
sense of responsibility that people should have when they create things. And we can get into debates about that later. But where that was coming from was in that first season, it just felt like an injustice was righted and then something happened. Mm -hmm. And then even if he did it or not, there were definitely questionable things that happened in the trial that makes you wonder, like just about the trial system in general and how it needs to be cleaned up. It does need to be equalized. Whether you thought he was guilty of that crime or not was kind of in my mind irrelevant because the process was so dirty that it just needs to be fixed. With the second season, like I actually felt like there was action to be taken after that first season. Uh, Like there's things that we need to put pressure on. There's things that we need to look at. With the second season, I started to feel like I... All, like I had a feeling about him being innocent, and then I was like, well, maybe that's that was purposely designed, kind of like the paranoid thoughts that you were having. Right. And then it started to feel really dishonest in a way. And then he started having mm-hmm. like a girlfriend, and I'm like, I don't care about this. <laughs> like you know, like yeah. Or like people writing in, and then like they were focusing on things that just didn't feel like it fit anywhere. And then they were naming suspects who weren't, like, they were coming up with different theories of the crime of people who weren't ever charged with anything. And that has the potential to ruin lives. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to be in right. jail to have your life derailed. You just need to have a, someone say that you could have done it. And there was at least four you different have a, people. like, a Twitter account, and somebody just is, uh, disagrees with you. That's all you need to have your life ruined, right, is a Twitter account. And there was, like, so it's, like, for sure. And there was, like, four I people think, who you're like, he could have totally done it. Like, so it's the parameters or, or the narrative that was in very clear in the first season became kind of like, I just want to go where the drama is. I just want to go yeah, with sensationalized things. So I agree. The second season seemed to be a little bit crazy. Well, the first season was more about, like, the injustices in the criminal system um, the the authority and the abuse within um, police departments that we see in, in news and media already and that we know about, that we're much more aware of now, perhaps, for some of us. Um, so it, it was more of a condemnation of those things, maybe how broken yeah. um, the justice system is. But then season two starts to shift, and what a lot of people don't recognize, maybe even some of those people who are holding up signs in defense of people who are currently in jail in the show. What yeah. um, maybe those people don't realize is that you can murder somebody, but then in the trial get off on a technicality. But that doesn't mean that you yeah. didn't murder that person. And the technicalities yeah. can be just like how you file things. Like it seems beyond my scope of knowledge. But based off of my basic understanding of the criminal justice system, if you don't do certain, certain things in a certain kind of way, and things are not recorded accurately in a certain kind of way, you could totally get away with crimes. And, and that, to For me, sure. I mean, I understand we have to follow rules and, and we have to follow laws and that those rules and laws were put into place for a particular reason of a precedent probably before. But, man, that, that, that gets you, man. That, that makes you feel and that makes you as a viewer start to think, man, and this is what I said to you, and you might remember, oh, my God, I, I am just one one moment away from a terrible accusation that I killed somebody maybe, maybe by like a, a, a six degree of separation, but like it, it, Megan were to die and I were the last person to see her. Oh my God. Now I'm suspect number one for no reason at all. 
you know, and that kind of power is overwhelming. And we know that people Mm -hmm. who have more affluence and have more influence usually have a better time with the criminal justice system. And that also is where those technologies can come in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it comes to like the Stephen Avery's, the, the main person, the main focus of the documentaries, he doesn't come from that affluence. And so, yeah, those technicalities don't don't necessarily apply, but there's definitely was questionable. Not I don't, and I'm I'm not even going to say whether I think he's guilty or not, but definitely there was some questionable things that were, were and I going think down. Season two, absolutely, absolutely. It was season two. My opinion on it is that they rushed it. They what they did is they just tried to milk it, and that's I felt cheated in that way more than anything by the time that I got to the end. I was like, wait, there's no conclusion for this? We don't know. I mean, the last time we were promised that he got out of jail halfway through, right? It, we, we knew that he was released for this crime. Now this one, now it's like, man, they're making, probably making a murder three soon, you know? I, that was the first thing that I did is I went to everybody's uh, Twitter accounts to try to look to see if there's any kind of evidence of any kind of rumors for uh, making a murder three. And then I was like, there's something sick about that when you think about it. And then I was like, why do I feel the need for that? I was like, well, because I binge watched this in a weekend, both seasons, basically. And season two was rushed to, it felt like it was rushed to create content to satisfy mm-hmm. the needs of people who were impressed and rightly so by making a murder season one, but they didn't give mm-hmm. it enough time to see what was going to happen. I think it was just like, I can imagine the, the big wigs, of Netflix saying, okay, guys, let's come up with some content here. Okay, well, why don't we just make, like, season two for making a murder? Ha ha. Well, we don't know what's going to happen. Okay, fine. Well, we'll just make it anyway. It just felt like that. And it felt like they just yeah. kind of sucked my and time I, out of me. And and I think what you just said is, I think, what is going to be the defining characteristic difference between a Netflix documentary versus other documentaries? Because I feel like with more traditional-minded documentary filmmakers – if the reason you wrote you you made making murder is to showcase the flaws in the justice system and what happened to this individual twice, right? This uh-huh. choose of something went to jail, innocent. Then I would feel like my next project is to find someone else who yeah. also fits parameters and start following their story. So that you can make the problem not a micro thing about Stephen Avery, but a macro thing as in this is a legal trouble or not a micro thing. Oh, this is something that's in Wisconsin. Uh This is a national thing. What they decided to do was just to focus on Stephen Avery alone. And once that really strict, neat narrative that happened in season one happened, and then his life got messy, and then you got a lawyer who... It's really good, but those lawyers also tend to be attention seekers. Right. Um, and so it, it started to come and then focus on different members of the family that have tempers. Like it just, it, it felt like the first one was watching a sad thing. And the second thing just looked like I was observing a hot mess. Like I was now just yeah. witnessing people at their worst in a lot of ways. And I think like you make an excellent theater. point. They could have gone to any other town in any other part of the United States and found a similar story and just continue to illuminate the problem when it comes to um, criminal justice reform. But they decided yeah. to go back to the original, the original cow. 
Yeah, because it's not making, it's like making Stephen Avery. It's making a murderer, and that could be anybody, right? So I, yeah. they lost the lost the focus on that one. Um, and I think that's why I wonder, is it producers, maybe, who knows, maybe it was their intention to do something like that, but then it just became so big that they never got, that they were pressured, perhaps, into something else. We don't know. I, I wouldn't know that. That's speculation, but. I wouldn't know that either. Um, so I think the most organic segue is to go into uh, The Pharmacist, which was mm-hmm. a very interesting documentary because it started off with one thing. <laughs> then I was like, yeah. then it started transitioning to a different thing. Um, so obviously this is a story about a pharmacist um, in New Orleans. His son died tragically in the Ninth Ward, uh, which is one of the poorest neighborhoods um, in New Orleans, also one of the biggest impacted um, in Katrina. Um, mm. And his son was killed in a drug deal. Um, and then it was dealing with trying to figure out who killed his son. And then it transitioned into, okay, now that that has been figured out, um, he starts going back to work and he's noticing that there's tons of prescriptions for OxyContin. And then he starts investigating the widespread abuse and the opiate overdoses that started happening with one particular doctor um, in New Orleans. And so it's, it, it was an interesting roller coaster. Um, I thought it was interesting, but I was like, okay, so this is just about a murder. And then I was like, what? <laughs> okay, no, this is, this is now about addiction. What? Like, it just, it had, like, a very sensationalized, like, sharp left turn that came out of nowhere, but also made total sense with the, the title. The first story made no sense. Because he just happened to be a pharmacist whose son died. Second one, right. title makes sense. So overall, what what was your thoughts about this particular one? Yeah, I think it's probably out of the ones we're going to discuss today, probably the best one. And I think it was just whoever decided upon this uh, subject, which is the pharmacist the, himself, um, did a great job with researching it. And I'm sure he wasn't. It was hard to find for me because I didn't know anything about his story. But knowing that he's basically spearheading in a big way this campaign against big pharma with the opioid addiction that's going on in the United States in particular right now, it makes total sense. Like if you just did some research, you would find his name probably associated with different things. And then once you Mm -hmm. talk to him, you'd realize, wow, he's got an incredible personal story, personal connection to this. Let's put him on camera. Let's have him talk about it. He's an incredibly interesting subject to, to document, to film you feel mm-hmm. for this guy. You just feel his pain. He loved his family. He he loved his kids to have lost his kid. To, to the, all the questions that go around with grief, and then the grief uh, that comes with losing a child, and then in particular losing a child to violence, and then knowing, and then finding out after the fact that your kid's addicted. Man, I mean, just the the turmoil that was within him, uh, and the way that they were able to capture that was so crucial to investing the audience early on into the story to where you were able to take that sharp left turn that you talked about and continue on with it to then complete this roller coaster ride to where you just were, you were hating corporate America. You were hating the lack of response when it comes to uh, um, the, uh, the authorities. The, the part that struck me the most was how, hard he tried 
to go and get people to authorities, uh, federal authorities, to get in there and start and stop um, criminal activity. Man, I mean, the, the frustration he must have felt. And then the fear, because, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't have a kid. I don't know what I would do if I were in the same situation. But there's a lot of fear when you're going up against people who are selling drugs, whether they're selling uh, hard drugs or they're selling pills, they're selling uh, prescription drugs. I mean, th- that's a monster that you don't want to tackle all on your own. And the fact that he Not was sure. reaching out to federal authorities um, and trying to get them to, to stop what he saw going on and that he was getting frustrated and then he was getting himself paranoid, I think rightly so. It was scary. I felt for him. And it was such a good way to turn it into this larger societal issue. So, so, so you got almost, if you compare it to making a murder, making a murder was at first at least trying to tackle this larger societal issue of criminal justice. And then, but, but they started kind of with this bigger aspect in that way. And then they went kind of micro with Avery. If you take the pharmacist, they went micro with, I'm forgetting the individual's name, forgive me, but they went micro with his story and started off with that. And then they went and they continued to uh, open up that circle of impact. And mm-hmm. you just realize that, man, the, it, it, the opioid addiction is, obviously we know it's real. Uh, it's impacted all of us in some kind of a way. Um, and then sure. what, what did people know and when did they know it, right? That, that's, that's what's frustrating about that. And we already know that big pharma, at least in the United States, is full of hypocrisy, full of um, just money grubbing. They're just, they're just, they don't Greed, yeah. necessarily care about the yeah, – they don't care about the patient. They care about the profit. And that's not news, but the way in which it impacts individual stories it's it's taking the statistic, actually telling the story about the statistic. So that was very cool. And I think that it serves as an excellent example of good documentary filmmaking, good television documentary filmmaking. And it serves as a really great example of how you find a story and how you tell that story. Because this guy was out there and his mm-hmm. experience was, in terms of being a father and losing a child, is similar to many, many people across the U.S. But his impact in changing things was very cool to see. Yeah, he was a very authentic person. Like, I think out of all of the ones that I've seen, I, his story was the most, like, it just really, I remember texting you going, this is so sad. <laughs> um, yeah. Because it was. Like, it, like, it was a gut punch. And he, I think the storytelling part, like you mentioned, out of all of them, I felt like the storytelling in this particular documentary had such an emotional narrative and the way that they drew it out like you were watching this story about his son and then it later turned out to be like the motivator for the thing that he kept doing to have the bigger impact on the overdoses and the abuse that pharmaceuticals were doing and that doctors were were being complicit in Um, Mm -hmm. and then even the story that was being told about his son the person who killed his son was part of the commentary. And then mm-hmm. you yeah. learn it was the killer. And I remember being like, Oh, like, I think I like literally yes. verbalized like what just happened. And yes. that is the part of good storytelling. Like you don't have to be sensationalized. You don't have to have the top lawyer or you don't have to have the auntie screaming 
with like a crop top and like yelling at people going like, ah, to, you know, to have mm-hmm. entertainment. You can already have something super compelling and then through story and the, through the edits that you're, you're doing, it can be something that really draws you in. And I felt like this particular documentary was done well on all cylinders and it mm-hmm. had a very clear agenda. Like I knew, like, like I, I like with documentaries, it's like, it's either to inform you on something or to provide you a ways to take action. And I felt mm-hmm. like with this particular documentary, it did all of those things that I usually expected a documentary. Um, and it was super compelling too. It was, it was I think I and, actually watched that the fastest. Yes. Like, and I, I think, think what's I did, important like, too about, if, about this list is that, you know, um, remember this is content that anybody can watch, you know, so like, you know, young people can watch it, older people can watch it, you know, and so this kind of egalitarianism of everybody having, seemingly everybody having access to Netflix and access to these documentaries, it, it, that means that the information gets out to the public so much faster. And if you're looking at something like The Pharmacist, it did a great job because it provoked you and it informed you. Um, but mm-hmm. also, too, when you think about the impact that it could have, it, it really made people think about the choices that they m- might make uh, when it comes to uh, their own addictions or staying away from drug addiction, right? Uh, the things that they could take, you know, in terms of policy, you know, when it comes to big pharma and so on. So the idea that it could have such a widespread impact, that does not happen, unfortunately. It does not happen when you go to your art house movie theaters. There's just You're going to have a certain kind of person that's going to pay, you know, 10 to $14 to go and sit in a movie theater with only like five other people to watch the pharmacist versus putting on the pharmacist in the comfort of your own home for, for paying, what is it like 11 or 12 bucks a month? Right. And, and then sure. watching a billion other things that you want to watch. So that's, what's very interesting about Netflix doing this rather than, you know, making it into a, a one and a half hour movie, you know, in some small theater somewhere. Yeah, for sure. The accessibility part definitely makes this a lot different. Um, and then for the next one, um, World War II in color. Now, I know yeah. a bit about World War II. Um, I have taught both 10th and 11th grade, which is basically World War II twice, just different focuses. <laughs> um, and, like, even though I knew that I knew what was going to happen, I knew the stories, I was still somehow like, what? Ah, ah. Um, and I think it was because the way, like, the, <laughs> the narrator of World War II in color with, like, the footage and then the quick, like, going into random, like, experts. And all of them had, like, really good sense of, the, like, had a really good sense of humor, too. Like, what in the world are they thinking? Mm-hmm. Like, they were very, like, opinionated. Um, made it so that I was still, even though I knew it, was like, what? Uh, uh. Like, I just. I'm like, then I would like stop the episode and be like, why was I so surprised? I'm so not surprised. Like, <laughs> I was just having conversations with myself. So, what what is what are your thoughts on World War II in color? I think I think when people think about you know the kind of classic PBS documentary film, they'll often think of something like this. You know, they'll think of the Talking Head and then the um, archive footage. You know, and then the um, uh, the voiceover over the with the talking head voiceover over the the footage and so it kind of it moves you know and it gives you this information. Then you go and you you colorize it, which is super cool, super interesting, right? So it gives you this feeling that it's more fresh, 
which maybe might have been part of that kind of visceral response that you had because it was in color, you know. And while we might see photographs in color, we don't see a lot of footage in color from that time for practical reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you're looking at World War II in color, it, when you talk about it moves, like all these move, right? It moves really fast. And it's really interesting to watch how they're able to take a story that a lot of us who – uh, study history or know something about the 20th century, they know basically what happens in World War II, the basic uh, big points in time uh, over the course of the war. And then you like put it in color and then you got these really compelling like talking heads. You're like, man, this is, this is a new story, but it's not. But, but it's so cool, but, but I already knew that, you know? So there's, there's kind of like that disconnect in your mind. But I, there's lots of people that tell me that, that they that they when I tell them I'm a film major that they go oh, I I don't I don't like the black and white movies for for whatever reason it might be right well this kind of satisfies that problem right for some people put it in color suddenly it seems new you know and um, <laughs> I think it was really kind of neat that they took this simple format that you might see on like History Channel of old and you just you put it on Netflix. And it's something I didn't mention to you, but if, if you do get a chance, if you watch World War II in color and then you watch the other Netflix documentary called Five Came Back, which talks about these five big um, uh, movie directors from old Hollywood and how they themselves were the ones going out there, uh, risking their own lives sometimes, going out and filming um, uh, what, what was actually happening during the war. And they were asked by the government to go and do this. Um, and you, you look, you, if you watch these two kind of uh, side by side in the same time frame, you'll recognize just how uh, you, you'll, you'll have the, you'll understand the gravity of what it must have been during a war. You know, we, we know this because right. of recent wars where, you know, you have uh, war correspondents, war journalists, you know, they, they get killed still now, you know, it's not so distant, the danger. Um, but it was very right. interesting to somehow take something that like seems so simple, which is you take archive footage and then you have some people talking about it, which is like your standard History Channel, uh, Smithsonian Channel documentary. And like Netflix has got it and they did it and they put it in color. And somehow it's like it's a shiny new package. You know, we ate it up. And yeah, no, it's, it's definitely watchable. It gets very like even though there are some episodes that are very heart wrenching, like um, mm-hmm. but it just it. And I think it was easy, like, I was just thinking, because I'm a history nerd, but if I was just not a history nerd watching this, I feel like it would be interesting. Like, I, I actually feel like if we took this and we played it to a class of students, I think they would also find it compelling. Yes, and but that's also part of the danger with Netflix, isn't it? Is that if somebody could say, I, I, I know about World War II because I watch World War II in color. You know, and, and yes. the thing about this being a docuseries, too, is that there are gaps in that story about the, the, the comprehensive story of World War II. You know, so yes, to is. go and say, I watched this documentary, so therefore I know everything about Big Pharma, or I know everything about the, the justice system, or I know everything about, um, you know, flus and pandemics, you, you just can't do that, right? But there are people who get their information solely from, you know, what they watch on TV. So what was is it is it a good you know docu sure I mean it it works really well the danger though sometimes with that is that people will sit down in front of History Channel or Smithsonian or now Netflix and they'll get their content they'll, they'll get their information from that and think that that's all that there was 
and not understand the, the connecting points. So there, there was aspects within World War II of Color as a, as a criticism. There were aspects where it did not connect the dots very well on how you moved from, like, episode one to episode two. There were big chunks that were left out that there the bigger history that. nerd, yeah, the bigger history nerd would recognize and know. But it, so it, it, the reason why I mentioned it to you is because I found it interesting that you could very quickly eat up everything, quote, that you needed to know about World War II by watching this documentary and have a basic understanding <laughs> of it. So that's a good thing, that's but also a bad thing as well. <laughs> It is. Yeah. Well, because I'm just like not critically, not being a critical thinker in general. So like okay. anything that you watch, you need to look at other things. You have to make sure that it's all good. Notice that you're only getting one story. You're only getting this. I'm sure if Hitler was telling his own story, it would be a very different story. So like <laughs> there's, yeah, just being critically thinking and is, is always important. But yes, when you have these really accessible things that can be sensationalized, and I would say that the way in which the narration of World War II in color was was sensationalized because like it's because it got me excited, even though I knew what the fuck I knew what was going on, right? So right. Yeah. It just, like it it the, the things like I said before, Netflix, every single one of their documentaries, the thing that I keep coming back to is it's just really quick. It's like it's yeah. It really just, it takes you in and then it gets, you don't spend one place very long. And that's when you get surface level knowledge, not necessarily deep knowledge. So that's another thing to to think of when it comes to any of these documentaries in general. And putting it in color does create a different, uh, it creates a different viewership. So there's different people that will watch it now because suddenly it is in color. But then also too, (laughs) it, it just, it makes it feel more real, which is sometimes why people, one of the reasons why people don't like, you know, uh, black and white films. Um, so to go and put it in color, it, it feels like a more visceral experience, like I mentioned. And so it makes it, it, it brings it back to life for kind of a modern audience, but it's misleading, you know, because, because what we don't, what people don't understand is that perhaps they don't understand is that, you know, there's a lot of footage that was taken during this time, and that's not all the footage that was there. And this is selectively edited to take those mm-hmm. certain um, moments of the war, and it didn't show all the content. So what is still the message behind this? You know, it, it just seems like it's supposed to be information. Oh, I'm just, I'm gathering, I'm soaking up information about World War II. But the, the more self-aware viewer will need to recognize that, you know, there's still things that were left out. Why did they colorize these certain things? Why did they t- tell these particular stories? And then, then you can start to understand how it's not just um, – the documentary doesn't always have to be – people think the documentary is just 100% fact-based, and if it's not, then it's not a true documentary. All, doc- all documentaries have some kind of angle or uh, reason yeah. behind it, yeah, a perspective, intention. So – you got to recognize that even with something that seems like really straightforward, like what we're doing colors. So if I had to choose why they pick those moments, I think it's because they really wanted high school teachers to use it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> the, those are all the moments that are on the, the yeah. standards, at least in California. So, I mean, mm-hmm. someone could go away for like a teacher can go away for a month and be like, I'm going to play this. <laughs> Um, yeah, it wouldn't be good if they did that, but you could definitely see that they were trying to go after that. I think. Um, sure. The last one, 
which actually made me super happy because I am a millennial that is refusing to grow up, um, which is <laughs> the toys that made us. And it had a lot of yeah, the toys. Yeah, it was I fun, huh? Like teenage Ninja, Ninja Turtles, Power Rangers. I was given Barbies, although I didn't play with Barbies. <laughs> um, all of those good things. And it was actually very compelling stories about every single one of them. I didn't know that the toy world was so cutthroat. That's I didn't know that life. either. Was For that real. Toy makers are like crazy competitive, and it's a cutthroat world, and they will do anything to be number one for a moment. My brother is really into Legos and or Lego. I've been I've recently found out that there's no plural. There's no S on the end of Legos. So he he will collect Lego and. Uh, just learning about that was like super neat. Like I had no clue. Like it just these things that we played with as kids. You know, you're you just kind of go along. You know, you're five or ten or whatever, and you're just like, I like it. I dig it. It's cool. You know, you don't think about like that. There's a story behind it, or like you said, that it's cutthroat, or like that tears were shed. You know, to make this this acceptable wave. Um, like, but apparently, like there's like when you make a certain product, it will last this long, and then it has like like. Just as a kid, you just, you just, I want that. But you didn't realize how yeah. much you were going to be manipulated as a five-year-old. <laughs> oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> manipulated and I thought this was a good one. documentary because it's just, it, it's just kind of a different vibe. You know, you have, like, the really heavy stuff. Like, the pharmacist is really sad, you know, when you think about his story. And then you have making a murderer, which makes you want to, like, rip apart, like, law textbooks, you know, like, throw them at the TV, you know. And then you got pandemic where you're like, you're, you're just, you wash your hands every 10 minutes, even before the actual pandemic. And you've got and like all thought. these different feelings. And then you come across like the toys that made us and you're like, oh, you know, this is like really chill. And just like kind of, it's not like your mind isn't being active, but it's, it just feels like a warm bath. It just feels re- reassuring. It's an easy, fun documentary to watch. You do get very compelling stories based off of the histories of these different toys, but it doesn't feel like, you know, you're not watching like a murderer, you know, in jail, you know, like, so it feels a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like, you know, like I said, a warm bath that kind of cleans away the terrible things that are out there in the world. And you just kind of learn about these fun things that you love as a kid and you're like, oh, that's kind of neat. I didn't know that, you know, so it's kind of something for everybody out there on Netflix. And it definitely had some reenactments, and it had a really fun yeah. theme song that mm-hmm. got cut in my head after, like, the second episode. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> for, like, TV. Um, and it is also fast-paced. It's, it moves yeah. along, and with the music and the editing and, and the reenactments, it's like you can, there's not a still moment. Like, I don't even think there's a – I think with any of this, actually, the pharmacist did, actually. I'll take that back. Um, there's not a lot of moments to reflect. Um, yeah. Like like a moment of silence. I think the pharmacist did it did, does it throughout. I think making a murderer did it a couple times in the first season. Yeah. Um, but like that moment to reflect as a as a viewer is important to readjust or recalculate or rethink or just being that moment. And I feel like. A lot of us is really, just really fast. We go bam, 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 bam. But with the toys and that made us, I think it's totally purpose, fine because yeah. it wasn't really deep or anything crazy that you had to think of. And it actually reminded me of like, um, this, this is gonna date me, um, 
But you know VH1 <laughs> pop up? Yes. Pop up video? Yes, I do. Like yep. it's like the pop up like, video. Little, like like just like the theme song and just the manic facts that come on the like it just like that whole like the whole series reminds me of that vibe. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah. It actually reminded me of kind of like uh, Dogs 101 or Cats 101, where you get to learn like a new dog breed. It kind of reminded me a little more like that. Oh, I get to learn about Lego. Or I get to learn about Sanrio. You know, it's a little bit deeper than yeah. that. But you know, you learn some interesting tidbits. You know, and then you get to move on to the other you know thing that you played with as a kid. You know, like cool. You know, it's kind of happier. But that fast pace is important because. Netflix wants you to get deeper and deeper into their content and wants to recommend more and more things to you. And it wants you to push and play next episode. For sure. Now I think that both of us have talked about just overall in general, the great thing about Netflix doing these documentaries is one, they are making pretty good content. Like I was really super entertained. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the second thing is that it's accessible. So anyone can get to these. You don't have to go to some hoity-toity um, art theater or feel like you're at a place or feel like it's above you. It's something that you can right. get to. So accessibility is always important. Um, now, you brought, you watched one episode of Tiger King. Yeah, let's do this. Let's talk about it. It's, so let's what do you real. think um, is the drawback? Like, what is the danger in Netflix documentary series? Um, and that yeah, maybe Tiger King. People are, like, so into it. Yeah, people are, like, super into it. It's basically, like, making a murder but with big cats. And um, <laughs> I didn't feel – no, seriously. I, I didn't feel the need to watch an additional episode, and I'll tell you exactly why. Because I needed only to watch episode one. So I've, I, I've been asking different people about it because – I've got a soft spot for animals, and I don't like watching even a narrative film where I know that there's all these regulations to make sure animals don't get hurt. I don't like watching animals getting hurt in movies. It is the one thing I can't handle. And so I was like, I don't know if I want to watch this. I don't know if I want to do this. So my brother, again, said, you know what? Just go and watch episode one, and you'll get everything that you need out of it. And he was right. For, for people that watch documentaries, for people that understand how to create a, document, a documentary story, the story behind the doctrine, because they are stories. It might be fact-based or, or parts of reality or parts of actuality, but it, it is some kind of story, some kind of, some kind of compelling narrative that you're trying to get people to pay attention to in the visual form. It, it, with Tiger King, it was like, you got this guy, he's got like a bunch of like big cats, and already your stomach's starting to turn because you just know it's not right and it's not okay to do that to animals. And then you start to realize that, oh, this guy, obviously, because he's, like, doing the phone call from jail. And I was like, am I watching Making a Murder again? Because that exact same kind of shot where you have, like, a, a nighttime shot, uh, the camera is angled up to look at this sad um, jail window that's illuminated from inside and stark all around. That exact same shot, I swear, I could probably put it side by side with a scene from Making a Murder. And you start to realize then, you're like, oh, my God, this is just, again, it's just sensationalized. It's taking this concept of why making a murder was so popular, and you're putting out animals with it. And it just felt it just felt wrong, and it just felt like it was just too much. And I didn't feel the need to go and watch any more of the next episodes because I know what's going to happen. Somebody gets accused of murder. Uh, I've seen enough memes now that I know it was Carol Baskin somehow. It was her fault. I don't need to know any more than that, apparently. And um, I get it now. You know, I, I get the yeah. memes. And I, I guess that's why I showed up for it. And that's the scary part about 
documentary, when you're making it more and more accessible for people, what happened with Tiger King very clearly is that they created a reality TV show and they said it was a documentary and it might be real and these people are real and the consequences of the things that they did are real. But I bet you the people that like Tiger King are probably the same people that like The Bachelor. I probably I don't disagree with that. I think that that is my worry as well because this is what usually happens, and this is not just Netflix. This is just entertainment and business in general. Oh yeah, is that usually you start off with the best of intentions? So you have these documentaries that are really really good, and you start off with a with a story that you want to tell, and then it makes money, and then your producers or your execs go, "Wow, this made money. Do this again." Let's do it again, and, yeah. <laughs> and then when you try to recreate something that can't be re because art is art. Like, you just, you know what I mean? Like, the reason why there's always a sophomore slump in music is because it's, the musicians are trying either to get away from their first album so much that it fails, or they're mm-hmm. trying to reproduce their first album so much that it fails. Um, yeah. So, like, when you try to force art, it starts to get into this reality sensationalized thing, or you start to be like, well, what do the people want? And once you start to do that, then you can even question whether it is art. Like, you know, like, so and yeah. then it just becomes this thing that is created so that people eat it up. Um, and, and real quick, the moment I knew it was Yeah, and real quick, the moment I knew it was bad is when I saw the filmmaker himself in camera talking about it kind of like breaking down the fourth wall. Oh, um, uh, oh, now I'm, in, I'm, I'm, now I've got this guy directing me. He knows how to set up a shot better than me. And I was, and I just said, okay, now you're just looking for your own kind of fame. You're just, you're just creating nothingness. This is your oh, own opportunity at, at notoriety. And I'm, I'm not, I'm done. I, that's when I knew. And that was probably like, what, like 10 minutes into it. So that's all you need. Yeah, I don't like that at all. Uh, but yeah, so I'm excited about what Netflix does. I definitely have some mm-hmm. concerns about when the execs step in. Overall, I was impressed with most of the content. I think Making a Murderer Season 2 is the one that most worried. Um, but I think it will be interesting to see what Netflix does next. And I think it will be interesting to see what competitors also start to do next. Absolutely. Because they will not be the only ones for too long. Anyway. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, Gabby, that's all the time we have for. Sadly, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to thank give you. a bunch of updates now. Um, so make sure you follow us at TalkNerdy talk underscore radio on Twitter. Uh, follow our nerdprobs.com where we have a bunch of reviews, art, all sorts of things. Um, I also want to plug Gabby's blog. She does a lot of movie reviews and just movie opinions in general. Um, her blog is w.gabalinhawk. That's G-A-B-I-L-A-N hawk like the bird.com um some shows to look forward to we'll be back on tuesday for television and books we're going to be talking about tv shows that led to massive disappointment there is tons um and then on wednesday we'll talk about politics uh updates with the coronavirus as well as election news if there is any our next date, nerdy deep dive will be about the avatar world it's going to be on april 25th time will come at a later point because i don't have it right now uh, so thank you, Gabby, again, um, and thank you, and hope you have the rest, a uh, great rest, and everyone.